Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Julie Ehrman, the president and founder of the new Los Angeles NWSL expansion team announced this week. We've had some great interview guests lately, including Jurgen Klopp, Matthew Wolf, and Josie Altador, along with many others. So check those interviews out. It would be absolutely huge for this podcast growth if you could subscribe, recommend us to your friends, and take just a little bit of time to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. We'll have Julie Ehrman on soon, but let's start with some talk about the soccer news with my friend Chris Whittingham, who co-hosts the Chelsea Miked Up podcast, which you should definitely check out. Chris, thanks for joining me. How are you? Doing great, and I'm glad that later on in the pod we're talking Angel City FC because... Natalie Portman is the owner of an American soccer club. This is an incredible news story. <laughs> she is one of 30-some new owners yeah. of this L.A. team, including uh, Serena Williams, uh, several actors, um, former U.S. women's national team stars, lots of them. Uh, so there's a lot of good stuff in this interview. I think listeners will learn quite a bit. I know I did, but... There's always lots of stuff going on in the soccer world, especially right now. Uh, let's start with Liverpool 5, Chelsea 3. Uh, you've talked a lot about this, I'm sure, on your Chelsea podcast. Kind of a crazy game. Not great defending by Chelsea. Liverpool gets out of its slumber a bit, and Christian Pulisic comes on to do some pretty amazing things. Uh, what stood out to you? I mean, from our perspective, it has to be Christian Pulisic, and just the incredible impact that he makes when coming on a lot of Chelsea fans were kind of question well why isn't he starting he's been on the bench in the last two games but he had apparently picked up an injury in the match against Norwich and then didn't feature in the FA Cup so you're thinking well maybe this injury is a little more serious than you thought and then he comes on the pitch it's like this is the best Christian Pulisic even by his very high standard since restart this is the best that we've seen him and just makes an absolute fool out of Joe Gomez and making him in route to the assist for the first goal. And then for Chelsea's third and the one that he scores, takes it off the chest. And my, you know, my American feeling of wanting him to score, I'm kind of cringing as the ball is falling down his chest. Like you have this space in the middle of the penalty area. The ball has to fall. You have to take this shot now. And it felt like he had all the calm, all the patience in the world to take down this incredible opportunity and put it away with a plum. So his impact, it really felt for a moment like Chelsea could get to 4-4 just strictly off the back of his performance. It was sensational from the American. Pretty incredible. I think what really sets apart Pulisic, especially right now in the form he's in, but especially on the goal that he scored too, very few, even elite professional athletes soccer players have that kind of poise in the box where time sort of stands still and it, it seems to only do so for them, but like the poise is still there. Like that's such a rare skill, even among attacking players. And I loved the look on Jurgen Klopp's face. They got a great <laughs> camera angle on it after that goal where it's like, he's staring right at the camera and then he kind of goes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's quite good. This, this this kid that I coached once is really good. Yeah, I mean, it's not only you're, you're talking about elite soccer players, and that's the thing that for me has most emerged in the post-lockdown period is that you no longer talk about Christian Pulisic as an elite young player, an elite American player. He's just an elite player who's dominating at the very highest level for a team that's going to, you know, maybe qualify for the Champions League, and he will in large part, be the reason that they do based off this post-restart period. He's just an elite player, but that trait that you talked about, that poise in front of goal, is especially rare for American players. Even though we're kind of getting out of the, the specter of talking about him in, in the context of other American players because he's so individual and singularly talented compared to every other American player that has ever lived, um, that poise in comparison to other Americans is one of a kind. Yeah, it's been a really good stretch for him since the restart. Um, and he still has some big games coming up here. FA Cup final, uh, the final game of the Premier League season where Chelsea does need a point uh, versus Wolves to guarantee a berth in Champions League next season. And then they're still alive, Chelsea, technically, in Champions League. They're going to get to go to Bayern Munich, a place that he's played before, obviously. And I really hope he just goes balls to the wall, basically. And, uh, and, and, and they try to, to make up that difference. They've got to. Um, and so uh, just so much to be excited about right now with Christian Pulisic. And I think heading into next season, which isn't that far away either, this really sets it up 
uh, for, I think, uh, a heck of a lot of hype heading into next season. And imagine how much worry would be going through the American fans, obviously rooting for this player, with the number of incoming transfers that are already confirmed, and then the Kai Havertz rumors picked up this week. If Christian doesn't have this run of form where he clearly established himself as being a part of that core rather than someone who's going to be replaced by three incoming attacking signings that are of a very high level, uh, Hakim Ziyech, Timo Werner, and then if Havertz doesn't indeed come in, Christian Pulisic would be talked about as being among those replaced. And now they're talking about Tammy Abraham, Willian, Callum Hudson-Odoi, Mason Mount as the players that would be replaced by those incoming signings. And Christian Pulisic is a part of the attacking trident that you're kind of dreaming of. So it's incredible how important these seven or eight matches in the Premier League and the few others in the cup competitions have played a role in really altering the view of what Christian Pulisic's 2020-2021 season is going to be like. Anything else from this game in terms of... Stuff that stood out to you, whether it was Chelsea or Liverpool? Yeah, for me, it was just Liverpool at their very best. Uh, the, yeah. the quality of the goals that they scored, the first strike from Naby Keita comes out of nowhere. Naby Keita has kind of struggled uh, since arriving at Liverpool and then you know has that moment of magic. He's been playing more in the post-restart period, and I kind of wonder, heading into next season, if he's a more important uh, player for that squad. Uh, then Trent Alexander-Arnold's free kick and cross. I guess from an attacking point of view, First off, Roberto Firmino scoring at Anfield, which had kind of become a little bit of a hoodoo, uh, was really important for him. It was kind of a cool way uh, to cap off this title-winning season before they go and lift the trophy in the cop end. But Vince's Trent Alexander-Arnold performance, both with the free kick, that's kind of how he first announced, uh, you know, wow, Trent Alexander-Arnold's going to be an important part of this Liverpool team. And then the crossing was just a perfect right. ball into the head of Firmino. Uh, I think Trent Alexander-Arnold's performance is probably the Liverpool thing you take away from it. And if you're a Liverpool fan, not only are you feeling good about seeing the trophy presentation, but you're thinking this was more the Liverpool that we saw this season. And so that, that, that's a good thing for anyone wanting to, to feel good about that trophy celebration. Man United won, West Ham won, and not a great game, but an important game with high stakes where West Ham is now safe. David Moyes goes to Old Trafford, where he once (laughs) coached, and gets a point, which is impressive. And now West Ham will not have to sweat it out on the last day of the season. So congratulations to them. Man United in a situation now where they get a point out of this game and they will now need at least a point at Leicester to uh, to get a Champions League berth for next season to clinch one. Um, and the Man United of the last couple of games has not been the Man United we had seen since the restart. Yeah, and up until that performance against Crystal Palace uh, last Thursday, it was a week ago, Grant, where they were, you know, two nil. They won by two goals to nil. They had just coming off of what seemed like a blip against Southampton, where they dropped points. But prior to that, we're beating teams for fun in every competition they played in, and then all of a sudden you come into that FA Cup uh, semifinal and they lay such an egg that now. Uh, paired with the West Ham result, you're doubting whether or not they can beat Leicester on the final day. I still think they're going to do it just because I think Ole kind of managed himself into a bad spot in that FA Cup semifinal and that West Ham did well to frustrate them in a way that I just don't think Leicester can. And that's kind of weird to say that a team in fifth uh, is worse at something than a team that's in, you know, 15th, 16th. But Leicester are not going to set out to defend uh, in the way that David Moyes sent his team out to do so. That game is going to be more open. And I think Manchester United is going to, with that front four, be able to put Leicester away. But the fact that we've kind of arrived at this stage and there's still doubt about whether or not Manchester United can qualify for top four is not something I'd anticipated even a week ago. So uh, they've been really good since restart, and this is kind of the first time they've hit another of their usual blips that we've seen from them in the last six, seven years. But I think they'll just about get over the line on Sunday. Yeah, I I mean, I like the fact that the final day with all those games, 10 at the same time happening, is going to have several games that matter. That hasn't always been the case in recent years. But you've got the Leicester Man United game, Champions League stakes for both teams. You've got Chelsea needs a point at home against Wolves to get to Champions League. And then you've got three teams, two of which will be relegated on Sunday, Bournemouth, Aston Villa, and Watford. Watford, having replaced its coach, (laughs) Nigel Pearson, with two games left in the season, 
What happened there? Well, what happened there? I just think it's that ownership group, the the, the Putso family Jesus. who own who own Watford. I think this is their eighth Premier League manager in something like five years. Their fourth this season. This is just what they do. And normally, you don't question their madness because they've managed to stay in the Premier League. They got them up in the first place, but. I think this is the time where it's going to come back to bite them. That Aston Villa result, I think it's going to get them over the line. I can't see Watford in their current state getting a result off Arsenal, even though they have nothing to play for, uh, you know, kind of being consigned to not finishing in the Europa League places and looking ahead to that FA Cup final. But in their current state, I can't imagine Watford getting anything. And then Villa have every opportunity on the final day to get something off West Ham, who will probably be on the beach uh, confirming their Premier League status for next year. Uh, and then Bournemouth at Everton have a chance to kind of upset the as well so man I think Watford has just about finally mismanaged their way into the championship but we'll see if it, this combination of you know it, interim managers and the players can get one last point to see them over the line yeah I actually kind of think just because of Watford firing its coach with two games left I kind of hope they go down yeah is that bad <laughs> right it's just like you've you you deserve to get relegated based off the way that you've managed this season from the very beginning when they fired Javi Gracia who get, took them to a mid-table finish in an FA Cup final after like three games they brought oh. in another manager who failed spectacularly then they bring in Pearson now they're on their fourth manager like this is the stuff of relegated teams not you know Bournemouth who've been a picture of consistency if failed transfer signings so we now know the two two of the teams the automatic promotions that are coming from the championship to the Premier League next year Leeds United, and as of Wednesday, West Brom gets promoted. Kind of a comedy of errors toward, for that second spot in, in the last week, because I thought Brentford was going to get it, and yeah. they sort of screwed up massively. Um, but Leeds United, we, we knew as of last, uh, last weekend, uh, Marcelo Bielsa, wonderful story. Argentine coach, El Loco, maybe the most unique, eccentric coach in world soccer is that going over the top i think trailblazing i don't know if eccentric is the right word just because like to me eccentric gives off that like you don't have success anywhere and like marcelo bielsa has had some pretty significant success but uh definitely uh trailblazing like pep guardiola talks about him as being more important to the history of the game than he is just because yeah i've won a bunch of stuff but this guy has changed the way that we think about this sport so i guess i i kind of want to look at it in a positive way but yes he definitely has his idiosyncrasies for sure yeah i I, i'm just very excited we're going to see him coach in the premier league actually knowing him he will like leave the job now that he's done (laughs) it like he's like my work is done here (laughs) but um but leeds united obviously has a, a very certain way of playing under Bielsa and he's gotten those players to buy into that style of his, which is pressing frenetic buy in or you're out. And he's kind of shown that you can graft a style onto players, which isn't something you, you run into everywhere. Right. You see a lot of managers that want to come in and bring in their own guys, right? It's kind of the, the model for most big managers that come into new clubs as well. I need four or five signings when I arrive so I can implement my style of play. When Bielsa almost seems to make it a point to not want to sign players. He wants to keep, you know, this English championship journeyman who's 29 years old, who's, you know, played for four different clubs and has never really found a home to, you know, turn him into this, you know, beautiful player, this technical uh, skill on the ball that he didn't have before. And he kind of revels in this scenario. There's actually been some criticism from the Leeds fans that he hasn't signed enough players, that he's wanted uh, to bring in his own guys. But uh, Bielsa is just this ideologue who views his the, his style of play as above everything else. And it's gotten them over the line, even when, like, you'd think a club like this, they bring in Bielsa and they'd spend their way towards success. But that hasn't really been the case. They've kind of been in keeping with other championship clubs and they've just styled and in kind of intensed their way. They play more intense than anyone else in the championship championship and they've managed to get into the Premier League and now this other club that you know has recent Champions League history within the last 20 years we're yeah. a Champions League semi-finalist uh, that have also had a similar weight like Liverpool that's why I feel bad for their fans they've waited 16 years to get back in the league and then they weren't there uh, at Ellen Road to be able to celebrate it but you hear the way those fans talk and you know they'll die for Marcelo Bielsa he is a hero there uh, for what he's been able to accomplish and seeing that storyline play out in the top flight next year is going to be really fun. Yeah, I think every single one of those Leeds fans I saw in social media posts over the last few days celebrating with Bielsa, like coming in cars to where he lives and things like that. Amazing. But uh, yeah, um, West Brom goes up again. Good for the baggies. And 
for those of you who don't follow the championship too closely, and it's a slog of a season, it's 46 games, there's 24 teams in the league. They have a very cool thing, the, the promotion playoffs, mm. which takes the four teams but from three, four, five, and six, uh, and they play each other, semis and final, and the winner uh, is, is what they call the richest game in football because yes. you get promoted to the Premier League and does show you that occasionally we do see playoffs uh, in, yeah. in league soccer in Europe. And, and this it's a lot of fun because the stakes are so high. And I will always remember the American Jade Demerit. Uh, I think it was back in 2005 with Watford was the man of the match scoring the goal, uh, the winning goal for Watford in the promotion final, which is part of the, the Jay Demerit story, by the way, should be made into a movie. I, I, yeah. I, if people don't know that, like here's a guy who like no MLS team wanted him. He goes to Europe, kind of backpacks around trying to find teams and eventually ends up in like some seventh division team and then gets signed eventually by Watford and ends up playing in the Premier League. Well, I, I, for me, that promotion playoff final is my favorite game of the year. I remember one year where Blackpool played in it, where it was just like, this this occasion is so much fun. Um, but it's actually one of the games that I think we will miss the fans the most uh, yeah. because the weight of, of, of the game and the occasion on all 90,000 people in the stadium, like everyone leaves exhausted. The players and the fans just from how important it is, but it's Brentford against Swansea, Fulham against Cardiff, uh, the two spots to go up. We've seen some really, really bad games. I remember when Huddersfield came up, it was one of the worst games I've ever seen, but that was such a cool story that it made it worth it at the end anyway. But just the players, I imagine, enter it with such fear. It kind of makes me wonder, you know, without fans, if maybe the game will be a bit more open. But uh, that game is just so much fun. There's so many games going on right now. It's wild. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's just impossible to follow all of them. So let's move to MLS where they got plenty of games still going on down in the bubble in Orlando. Credit to MLS. No new positive tests there, so good for them. Um, and so we get to talk about soccer. And Atlanta United, Frank DeVore's team, out with zero points after a one nothing loss to Columbus. And not only did Frank DeVore's team get zero points they got zero goals yeah in this tournament and i keep saying frank DeBoer's name like what's what that guy do to that team man I, he sucked the fun out of them and i've kind of been holding on to a rant about atlanta united because <laughs> it's it's infuriating that for the neutral the most fun team in major league soccer has yeah. been turned into one of the worst for the neutral and i think it entirely comes down at least in part to the manager. Look, also, P.T. Martinez has come into the league and done nothing. I mean, like, he, you know, South American Player of the Year, which is transfer ever, uh, and just has not made an impact whatsoever, and that's not at all what you expected, but maybe that has something to do with the manager. But it's a group largely of South American players. Their best players are almost entirely South American, married with a Dutch style of play, and that clearly just doesn't seem to have been a fit. Frank DeBoer's record in Europe would tell you that this could have happened, right? It was a pretty big failure at Inter Milan. It was a pretty big failure at Crystal Palace, and it seems like he really can succeed within the Ajax structure, but the minute you take him out of it, it's not going to work. And so the fact that he's turned them into drab and Joseph Martinez covered all of the weaknesses that that side had last year. And he scored basically half their goals and got them into the playoffs. But now that Joseph's hurt, you see that there's not a whole lot there. There really isn't. And yes, they've lost some players uh, who have moved on for personal preferences or salary. I'm thinking Gressel. I'm thinking Darlington Nagby. But Man, it's hard not to point to Frank DeBoer here. And and listeners, if you want to be amused by something, it's probably not nice to Frank DeBoer. Uh, Google Frank DeBoer, Jose Mourinho, and there's yes. a video of <laughs> of Jose Mourinho just doing the the harshest takedown I've ever seen of a coach, <laughs> uh, which basically, like I think DeBoer had criticized Mourinho at one point, and Mourinho. <laughs> Frank DeBoer, worst coach in Premier League history. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I I cannot stand Jose Mourinho, but that clip is the absolute greatest. It was, I think, Frank DeBoer had criticized, like a pundit had criticized how he was handling Marcus Rashford as Manchester United manager. He's like, he is, he is a loser. He, he He's the losingest coach. He just kept saying loser, loser, loser over and over again. It's a delightful rant. 
<laughs> oh shoot um so columbus wins again uh they're on uh nine points uh heading into the round of 16 are they the best team you've seen so far in this tournament i think they have to be just based off the fact that the only ones so far that have taken nine points from nine and they've you talk about atlanta not scoring a goal Columbus haven't conceded a goal and we talk a yeah. lot about their attacking players uh, particularly Zello Ryan Darlington Nagby is getting a lot of plaudits and deservedly so for basically never ever giving the ball away uh, Caleb Porter has implemented his style of play and I thought that the MLS nerds were getting a little bit too excited about Columbus ahead of the season. Like all the all the people who really follow the league were really going crazy about, you know, the Zellerayon signing. Look, that's deserved, but I just kind of thought it would take them longer to move from where they were last year, which is towards the bottom of the Eastern Conference, all the way up towards the top. But that's MLS. It can happen in the space of one offseason. And my goodness, Columbus look amazing. I, I still think, though, that LAFC even without Carlos Vela, is among the classes of the league. That'd be an amazing final. I don't know what the the, the paths are going to look like if they're going to end up in the same bracket, but uh, if LAFC and Columbus meet in the final, that'll be a final uh, deserving of this tournament. The performance that Diego Rossi and LAFC put on against LA Galaxy was deserving of them maintaining their moniker as best team in the league, even as bad as the Galaxy are. I, I think LAFC are still right there with Columbus as best team in the league. Yeah, I- I'm with you on that. And Diego Rossi is a guy we talked about as... A little bit like Brian Rodriguez being a guy who could uh, take this opportunity with Vela not being there to really show how good they are and how productive they can be. And they've done that so far. So I'm really looking forward to this LAFC Portland game. I know that the stakes aren't going to be all that high because both teams are going to advance. But uh, those are two interesting teams that I think actually both of them have a chance to win this thing. Didn't think I'd be saying that about Portland heading into Mm. the tournament. And in Columbus, what can you say? I mean, like, it's sort of a small sample size, but it's a lot of quality there so far. And, and Zellerine didn't start uh, the third game, but they still took the lead without him on the field. And I just like the way they, they interplay with each other. As you mentioned, they're not conceding goals. And Caleb Porter's a good coach, you know? And mm-hmm. maybe we shouldn't be surprised that a guy who's won titles pretty recently in this league would be able to build something in Columbus Tim Bezpachenko putting that roster together with him. Um, I like what's happening on the soccer side in Columbus. Uh, I can't believe that we were thinking not that long ago that Columbus wouldn't even have a team at this point, but uh, they do. They've got good ownership. Things seem to be headed Moving into in, a new the, stadium? in the right direction. Oh yeah. That stadium's getting built. So um, yeah, I think Columbus is the class of the East and I'm curious to see if anyone's going to prove us wrong on that. And I'm also just excited to see elimination games in the MLS tournament. I mean, like, I understand all the group stage games and all of that, but uh, seeing some higher stakes games, I think will be good. Well, it's funny because they're not higher stakes games because the, the, the group stage games count towards the regular season. But in the traditional elimination sense, like, it just feels like maybe once we get into the knockout rounds, you won't feel the heavy legs. So there's been so much conversation about heavy legs and about the humidity and all that. You wonder if in knockout games you see a bit less of that because the just natural instinct is win or go home. Uh, you will see a bit more intensity. And I, I, I agree with you that the knockout stages will feel like they're more important, even though I don't necessarily think they are, even as cool as the prize of uh, $1.2 million in a Champions League place at the end of this is. I would be very disappointed, though, Chris, if like there were teams down there that get to the knockout rounds and kind of say, eh, like, we right. don't need to win tonight. Like, even if it's not like a regular season game you get credit for, uh, you know, you do get rewarded for winning the tournament. And mm-hmm. and you also don't know, I don't know. I mean, like, you don't know how how and when this season's going to start up again. So I, I right. would think you'd want to get as much soccer in as possible. But I'm not in the minds of all these guys. We'll see how those games play out, and we can judge from how we view their performance, I guess. A um, couple things I wanted to talk about MLS-wise here. Charlotte comes out with its name on Wednesday and its badge Charlotte FC is the choice and the badge has a, it's round. It's kind of the same blue colors as the uh, Carolina Panthers NFL team owned by the same guy. And it's got a big crown in the middle. It is one of the many cities called the queen city in America. Um, Your thoughts. I mean, look, I understand the desire from American soccer Twitter, as it were uh, (laughs) to want more original names, um, I do kind of get, though, that if, you know, 
because we we want a, a, a new introduction into the lexicon, whether it's an American style nickname or you know a town or a Rovers or you know like a, a, a European style name that has been new Deportivo or something like that, like a, a new introduction to the lexicon. But if you're David Tepper, you don't care about what the other clubs are named. You care about what your club is named. And if you want to be an FC, then you get to be an FC. I just think. There's a desire both for an originality in name and in colors as well, because as you said, it looks like the Carolina Panthers logo, and there isn't quite anyone in the league, I don't think, that plays in that particular shade of blue, but as you talked about with Matthew Wolf over the weekend, there are colors that are not used in the American uh, soccer spectrum just yet that a club could own. It's why Inter-Miami coming in with pink was such a disappointment. They don't use pink in full just yet. Maybe they will at some point, but uh, I think there's a desire for originality, but Ultimately, the Charlotte fans and uh, and the owners themselves will want to have their thing. And if that's an FC, if that's blue, then, you know, more power to them. Yeah, I don't get totally worked up about this stuff. Like, I understand the frustration of some fans. I am a very sort of open-minded person about soccer lingo. Like, I don't care if you call it football or soccer mm-hmm. or calcio or whatever. I'm fine with all of it. We all love the same sport. Uh, so... If you want to call yourself FC, totally fine with me. If you want to call yourself SC or something else, totally fine. But uh, and even when it comes to just Charlotte FC, would I have like preferred maybe Charlotte Town? Given that there's a history where the city was once named Charlotte Town, that would have mm-hmm. been kind of cool, I think. Um, but. I also think that there's a, a decent chance that this team, Charlotte FC, gets a sort of informal nickname from its fans over time. Yeah. I also think how an organization performs eventually colors how people view uh, the branding. Like, I've, I've said this, and I got in trouble with all these Kansas City fans. I'm from Kansas City. I think Sporting Kansas City has succeeded despite not actually having a great rebrand. I, I still feel that way. I don't think like Sporting Kansas City is not my favorite name, yeah. but they've done so much right in turning around that organization that I think that's what matters most. And right, so and, and, Sh- and, you, and you come to like it because of the success, right? That you like Sporting Kansas City, which in in some respects is a ridiculous name for a team, but it's not ridiculous because they've had a lot of success and sporting park is now a thing. And, and sporting has become such a part of the lexicon to those fans that it no longer feels ridiculous, but that I agree with you has a a large part to do with the success that they've had. And I think Chicago may end up being the same way. Like a Mm. lot of people criticize that Chicago fire rebrand, but they're starting to, we're starting to see some, some really positive things that are happening under new ownership. And I think that, eventually could color how people view the rebrand. I, I'm not a traditionalist when it comes to Chicago Fire. When that rebrand was being discussed, <laughs> there were a lot of people who were like, they should never change Chicago Fire. Uh, to me, when you're the third Google result of your own club's name, <laughs> you should probably change the name of the team. Like I get, like, you know, there are people that want to preserve league history, but when you're third in the Google pecking order, you should probably go with a new name. Let's go to the NWSL to end this part of the podcast. Houston is into the NWSL final after a one nothing win on Wednesday against Portland. The winner of Chicago Sky Blue late Wednesday will join them in the final. Um, we finally got a goal in this tournament, which was good <laughs> after seven halves of no goals. Uh, and I'm glad we didn't, didn't have to go to penalties. And... Rachel Daly, just uh, I thought a pretty fearless play to stick her head in before anyone else could stick their foot in on a rebound. And I was a little disappointed. Like Eckerstrom's been so good in gold the last couple games uh, for Portland. And yet this time I felt like she didn't get up quick enough. Yeah, there, that, in fairness to her, that was a goal mouth scramble and there was a lot going on uh, in front of Eckerstrom. But at the same time, I, I thought Houston for the balance of the match, particularly the second half, I thought created the better chances and probably just about deserved to go through. This is a a big moment for them to get through uh, to a tournament final. They've come into the league and been okay, but for a Houston organization that has struggled to put together big achievements, uh, it's really huge for them to get into this final. And I really enjoyed the uh, performance of Christy Mewis this afternoon in that game at uh, Rio Tinto Stadium because she was creating chances all over, uh, had a really good one in behind for Nichelle Prince that she probably should have scored. Just some really good play from her in midfield, and I really enjoyed her performance. Yeah, she'd kind of gotten written off on the national team by Jill Ellis a few years ago. Obviously, her sister Sam is a starter for that national team, but 
the way she's playing, I don't see any reason why Vlatko Andonovsky shouldn't bring her in, Christy Mewis, when he gets the chance, if they ever have a camp again, um, <laughs> and, and and see what she can bring to the team. Because they're still in a in a phase right now where they can try some people, I think. But that final uh, is, is coming this weekend. It's going to be on big CBS, and uh, we'll see what kind of audience they get. I'm looking forward to it. Agreed. And Houston's a big television market, and obviously the competition plays a big role, but it's going to draw another big audience just because any game on network television is going uh, to draw an audience. Baseball is returning this weekend and the NBA will be back soon enough as well. But this is kind of the the big window for the NWSL to get another network TV audience. And I imagine come, you know, Tuesday afternoon, probably when these ratings will come out, there'll be another big headline. That's another huge step forward for NWSL and really caps off a tournament of great headlines for them. Uh, We've talked before about how with MLS, there's potential for positive COVID tests to kind of dampen any positive PR they would get from a bump in ratings. But for NWSL, not having any issues with coronavirus, uh, announcing Angel City FC and able to get a couple of big network television audiences has been a huge success for them. And they'll be curious to see if they can do anything with this after uh, this tournament and maybe play a few games towards the end of 2020 so they can continue this wave of momentum. Yeah, uh, listeners, if you should, if you haven't heard our interview with Lisa Barrett, you should check that out. She's the commissioner of the league. She's off to a very good start in her first year. So much soccer going on right now, Chris. I'm enjoying it. Thanks so much for joining me. No problem. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Julie Ehrman. Our guest now is Julie Ehrman. She is the president and founder of the new Los Angeles expansion team for the NWSL, nicknamed Angel City, and announced earlier this week. The team is set to begin play in the spring of 2022 and has a wide range of ownership group members, most of them women, including actors, tech entrepreneurs, and many, many former U.S. women's national team stars. I just want to start with a pretty basic question. What has this week been like for you with the announcement and everything? It's been incredible. The amount of support and enthusiasm for women's soccer, women's professional soccer, and bringing soccer to L.A. is overwhelming. I mean, we, we are passionate about women's soccer. We, they are the best players in the world. We see it showcased every World Cup, every Olympics. We have a city that loves sports and has incredible legends and victorious teams. And um, so the idea of bringing the two together obviously made sense for us for a number of reasons. But just to see the outpouring of support um, coming from all different industries and then around the world actually has been incredible. Nice. Uh, Could you start out, I guess, here just by sort of laying out what your role is with this organization? Yeah. So I'm one of the three founders. Uh, My partners are Natalie Portman, the actress and activist, and then Kara Nortman, who's a venture capitalist here in Los Angeles and works for Upfront Ventures. We had the idea to bring a women's professional soccer team to L.A. where we think about the mission differently in combining mission with capital and thinking about sports as being bigger than the game, thinking about it from an entertainment perspective with a goal to engage and act locally but entertain globally and create a brand that really transcends just sports. As we went to build that, um, we looked for investors that believed in the mission as much as we did. And so I took on the role throughout this process of not only founder, just sort of selling this mission and the idea, but also president who's going to put the club together and put the operating business plan in place to bring in sponsors and ticket sales, you know, engage a supporters community, solidify a stadium to play in, which would be really helpful, um, and then also work uh, with um, experts as it relates to building out a soccer side, the soccer operation side of the house when bringing in players as well as coaches and staff to support them. So what's your personal story outside of soccer? Where are you from? What's your work background in? Yeah, I'm born and raised in Los Angeles. Uh, Other than leaving for college to go to Washington University in St. Louis, I have always lived here. A huge sports fan. I played basketball. That was my sport. Um, Wasn't so good with the feet. So I played basketball from fourth grade all the way through college. Um, I am incredibly passionate about soccer. In fact, this interesting time in the world has allowed me to get a greater appreciation for soccer outside the United States. So watching Bundesliga, watching the English Premier League, it's been really fun to learn about the teams and the players and just sort of expand my understanding of soccer in general. Um, From a professional standpoint, I'm an entrepreneur. So I like to build businesses and brands and communities and bring them to the world. Uh, My sort of biggest accomplishment from that perspective is a company called Ouya, which was an Android-based video game console 
that I launched in 2013 on the backs of Kickstarter that then led into venture funding and then a release um, to the public of a game console that was available in Target and online and in game in the UK. Could you lead me through how you got connected to this LA expansion team project, kind of like just the, the origin story? Sure. So Natalie and Kara actually were talking about this for almost a year before I was brought on board. Um, Natalie's very involved in Time's Up. Kara's on the board of Time's Up. And they had a number of meetings together with the U.S. Women's National Team um, as they were um, focused on their pay equity fight, um, as well as just general issues around um, women empowerment and women equality. And so they, the three, those three individuals um, developed a relationship. And I think with the culmination of the World Cup, it was just so clear that we needed to have these incredible women, these incredible athletes, um, these stars here in Los Angeles. And Natalie had the idea of bringing a team to Los Angeles. Um, over the summer, um, a very good friend of Kara and mine's by the name of Robin Ward puts together a wild feminist women in tech basketball league. And it is three on three where there's probably more rosé drunk than basket shot. But all sort of the tech women get together and it's just a really fun time to catch up. And it was on the heels of the World Cup. It was August 18th. And Kara knows I'm a huge passionate sports fan and an entrepreneur. And she's like, look, you know, I have a day job. Natalie has a day job. This is what you do. I'm, why don't you come and have a bunch of conversations with me and let's see if there's a business case we can put together to bring a team to Los Angeles and do it differently, right? Because unlike the way it's typically done where you have, um, where you go to the league and you say, hey, we have the money, we have the stadium, um, give us the rights, we'll build the team. We went at it a different way, which just says, hey, we have the team, we're getting the money as we hit milestones and raise as a startup would, as we increase value along the way. Um, and we'll, we'll acquire the rights, we'll acquire the ability to play in a stadium, but we're approaching it very differently. And so we were able to, I was able to put that business case together with the help of NWSL owners, MLS owners, players, reps. And I remember that game, uh, that basketball game on a Monday, because that Sunday, um, Becca Rue from the U.S. Women's National Team Players Association invited us to the El Trafico game here in Los Angeles. So it was LAFC, LA Galaxy. It was my first professional game ever. And like, what a game. I mean, the 3252 is an unbelievable supporters community. You know, it's your hometown rivalry. It's like going to a USC and UCLA game, which I only go to if they play at the Coliseum because I don't like losing and driving back from the Rose Bowl. Um, and it was incredible. And so you had the enthusiasm and the passion of this incredible community of fans that love soccer. And then right in the middle of the 3252 are Mark and Lindsay Rojas who are waving a flag that says, bring in WSL to LA. So we just knew that, you know, all these factors together would, would make this successful. I just want to make sure here, you can get great startup ideas out of drinking rosé with your friends. Apparently. Yes. Very much. I'm in. Yeah. No, it's super fun. Somebody always leaves the bloody nose because it's a little bit of a, 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 a fun group of girls, but it's a, it's a blast. So when you talk about social mission, um, uh, you, you also talk about capital and, and wanting to have both. Um, like, you think it's, it's accurate to say that's possible to do both? Yeah, I mean, it's how you approach the business from the beginning. Like, we think about this as building a platform. And then what's important, um, what are the important pieces of the platform? Sports, soccer, social mission, our community, those are all aspects of the platform. And so if you approach it as we are bigger than a game, if you build a purpose, which is to ignite higher expectations on and off the field, then you have to develop proof points that show that you are hitting on that purpose. And the, and the broader mission of um, you know, entertaining globally together, right? Us and the fans. And so if that's our guiding light, if that's our North Star, then it's really important that we make an impact in the community day one. We build an incredible soccer team, um, both on the field and behind the team. We build an incredible and a tight connection with our supporters community. And so with that in mind, that's how we build. That's how we grow because we're looking at all of it and working all of it from day one. And so the announcement yesterday, which was not only that we acquired the rights and not only this incredible ownership group, but it was our partnership with LA84 Foundation, which is going to be our social impact partner and help us show up in communities in Los Angeles and use sports as a way to address social injustice um, in you know underserved markets. And so that's just as important to us as putting 11 players on the field. 
Yeah, soccer in the U.S. is is largely a white sport, largely a middle to upper middle class sport. Uh, that's true in the women's game as well. Is your club going to seek changing that in, in your community? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's about, first of all, it's about talking about the issue. It's about get, getting youth access to sports. So it's not just be, being able to bring a field closer to them, but sometimes it's transportation or it's cleats or for young girls, it's sports bras, right? It's understanding what the underlying problem is and trying to make a meaningful impact on that and being thoughtful about what the timeline is to see that impact and whether or not it's we're looking for something immediate or something over the long term. But we've engaged in a multi-year partnership with LA84. So our intent is to try to make a meaningful impact here and then also allow all the young girls that play soccer a path to not only be a professional women's soccer player, but to play in their backyard. Like they can play professional soccer today. There are nine, soon to be 10 amazing teams, but this is the opportunity for them to play here in front of their family, in front of their friends. In the last 11 months, what was the hardest part of your job to get to this week? Finding believers. I mean, like any startup, you hear a lot of no's. In fact, you hear more no's than yeses. And this was particularly challenging because our approach was different. And we were the first ones approaching building a professional team this way. So there was nothing that there was no guidance. There's no like roadmap that we could follow and sort of iterate on and say, look, they did it and it works. So it'll work for us. We didn't have the luxury of that. We are three women who believe passionately that mission can coexist with capital and sport can become entertainment and you can engage locally while entertained globally. And it requires real dollars. Um, and it's never been done before. So we had to be able to communicate our passion for the mission, but also the ability that we can deliver on the financial aspect of the model. And that this isn't a charity case, like we intend to make real money from this. We intend to drive real revenue from this. And so finding the people that understood the importance of both mission and capital um, took a long time. And we knew I mean, we knew we were going to be successful uh, after that first conversation with Alexis O'Hanion because he believed exactly the same way we did about leveling the playing field, about mission being as important as, you know, the financial metrics that the, the, the club develops. And having been around sport and being around his wife, he understands the impact you can make if you just decide to do it, right? Like get off the sidelines, stop talking about it, get in the game, put your money where your wealth is and do it. And that's what we're doing. And all of our investors. So you said you want to announce where you're going to play for a venue by the end of this year. How many options do you have right now? I mean, it's Southern California. There's a lot of places to play, but uh, we're, we're excited about our options. Um, we will we'll announce something before the end of the year. Uh, when you went to that LA Galaxy LAFC game, who are you rooting for? So it was my first game. It was really hard not to embrace the enthusiasm, the excitement of the LAFC. I will say that I went to the Galaxy for uh, Chicharito's first game, and it's the exact same energy and vibe. So I have to say that I am equally a fan of both clubs. What makes this team, Angel City, so exciting is that we can actually unify the city. There is one female professional uh, soccer club that will play here, and everybody should support us. Uh, most NWSL teams averaged around five to 6,000 fans a game last year. Portland Thorns was the outlier. They averaged around 20,000. Where do you hope your LA team will be in season one, just in terms of crowd size? You sound like you're doing my investor pitch. Um, <laughs> those are exactly the numbers and exactly the way that I would say it. Look, um, Portland's an outlier, certainly, because they're an incredible soccer-loving community. I mean, and the stadium is right downtown, and Merritt Paulson and Michael put on just an incredible, um, have an incredible operation, and they also have the strong support of a supporters community as well. We know that Los Angeles is a strong sports fan, and we know that these sports fans like to go out and support their teams. LAFC sells out every single game. LA Galaxy sells out every, every single one of their games. When the U.S. Women's National Team comes and plays here... <clears throat> They're averaging north of 15,000 fans. So our hope is to sell out. And once we pick that stadium, like that is our goal. Um, we need help to do that. We need to do that with our fan base. But, you know, our job is to put an exceptional, you know, 11 players on the field and create an experience that is one of FOMO. Natalie likes to say that our goal is to recreate the um, Showtime era of the Lakers in the 1980s, right? Everybody wanted to go to a game. 
everyone's going to want to come to an Angel City game. So this week, I've seen some stories saying Angel City is likely to become the team's name. And I've seen one story saying Angel City is not likely to become the team's name. Um, What do you think right now? And how will that naming process go from here? It's fascinating when you don't say something, how you get both sides of the coin. Um, look, we want, a, we want a name that's really personal and specific to our city and to Los Angeles. We want a name where as soon as you say it, no matter where you are in the world, you know exactly that we're talking about Los Angeles, which is why we've coined, coined ourselves Angel City to represent the city of angels. We also want to build our brand with our community and with our supporters. And so we've taken it so far. And now the last leg will be done with them. So anything's possible. Are there any colors you're leaning toward? Yes. Any specific ones? <laughs> no. I cannot share. If I told you before I told the rest of the ownership group, uh, I might be in trouble. It's a fun so process. With- I'll admit, like, the naming process isn't fun because once you fall in love with something, then you, you check it on, you know, you look up the URL or you look it up on Insta and it's taken. So it is, it is a painful process. But the color process is super fun. So when the NWSL Seattle area team was bought a few months ago, the team was valued at around $3.5 million. How much has your ownership invested in the LA team at this point? Is it in those terms? Is it multiples of that? Is there any way to characterize that? Sure. They've invested as much as I need to build an exceptional operation and organization to get us launched by April of 2022. Um, We do think about this business um, as being more than just a sports business. So when we think about putting together P&L, you know, there's a lot of thought that goes into the, the right size team that you need in the front office. What do we want to spend on marketing? What are we going to spend to engage with our community? And then also our CSR program with LA84, right? We're making a real financial commitment to that as well. Um, so we are fortunate that we have found a lot of people that believe in our mission um, and our purpose that can help us build this and do it the right way. When are you hoping to make your first hires on the soccer side? And would you consider hiring any of your ownership group on the soccer side? We'll be looking, we'll be focusing on that in 2021. It's the soccer calendar really dictates when we can, when's the right time to talk to a coach or bring on international players or even players that are currently under contract. And as you know, the draft uh, doesn't even occur until January of 2022. So we'll shift our focus to the soccer ops side next year. Um, Right now we're trying to build the, foundation of the business, right? Um, As it relates to our 14 incredible former U.S. Women's National Team players, I am looking forward to picking their brains uh, on everything soccer ops um, side of the house. So it is notable right now that of the nine head coaches in the NWSL, only one is a woman. You're obviously very proud, rightfully so, of of being mostly women-owned and operated. Would you, do you plan to hire a woman as your head coach? We plan to hire the best person for the job. The first thing that we have to do is decide who is Angel City. Like, what is the product that we want to put out on the field? What type of offense do we want to have? What type of defense do we have? What are the players available? What, how do they play? And really put together a bigger strategy. And then once we've done that, then we can go find the right coaches. But um, I find it to be, it'll be a very collaborative process with our owners that obviously have, you know, a ton of experience and um, opinions about that, as well as the players, right? If we find a player that we really want and think we can get, um, we really want to be thoughtful to match that individual with a coach that will get the best out of him, her. We're winding down with Julie Ehrman, the president and founder of the new Los Angeles NWSL expansion team. Really appreciate you taking some time here. Just a couple more questions for you. Uh, You have more than 30 people in your ownership group. Uh, We've seen something similar numbers-wise with the LAFC MLS team, just the numbers of of owners. Sure. What are the benefits of that structure, and are there any challenges to not having sort of a single owner? We didn't go out trying trying to bring in a ton of owners. In fact, the goal was we want to get the right people on our side Um, We want to raise enough money to put the best product on the field and to build the best team to do it both on and off the field. Having said that, as we started having this conversation, so many people believed in the mission and the strategy of targeting both mission and sports at the same time that we knew they'd make a meaningful contribution to the organization. So when it was very clear that it wasn't just a check we wanted, but it was a check plus engagement and involvement 
and awareness and participation, it's really hard to say no to people that are experts in their own field and can support the blind spots uh, that my team has. Even today, myself, I'm a huge sports fan, but I've never run a soccer team before, right? So be, to be able to leverage the expertise and the network of these owners and investors to be able to bring in the best sponsors, to bring in the best coach, right? To be able to, um, as we think about Angel City as a platform, to think about maybe that other uh, expression of Angel City that makes sense, uh, we couldn't say no. And so I'd say the benefit is as long as everyone's rowing in the same direction and believes in mission, the same way we do, it's exceptional, right? Obviously, if there's fracturing or if, we're, if we you know, don't communicate well, that can cause challenges. But uh, I don't foresee that happening. So I'm curious, what kind of innovations do you think we might see with your team? I mean, you have a team of founders that come from product and technology um, and venture. So we've already started, and, and we're not a legacy team, right? We're not a legacy sports team. Um, we're not legacy executives from sports. So we're already looking at sponsorship and ticketing about, you know, what's the right way of doing this? How do you engage in a world where most people are digital and social? What's the right way to reach them? You know, the world has changed where it's not one message to many, but it's a one-to-one message world. So how do we how do we build a product around that so we can get the right soccer fan to come to our games because we deliver what they're looking for from an experience um, in the same way that soccer is an expression of the brand and what we're trying to accomplish. And, you know, maybe there's other teams and sports and avenues that uh, we can play a role in at some point. Just lastly, since the announcement this week, have you gotten any really intriguing or surprising messages from people or companies out there? I mean, our partnership with LA84 has, you know, has already started to pay dividends as far as our ability to know that we're going to make a meaningful impact, to know that that relationship is meaningful and that we can show up, not only show up for the community, but also provide an organization for mentorships and internships where we can showcase what it's like to be part of a, to be part of a sports organization. Um, so that's been just incredibly rewarding, as we always hoped and thought it would be. Um, you know, as it relates to the soccer side of the house, what's really been wonderful is that there are a lot of brands that really embrace um, women, women athletes speaking to women. And so the outpouring of interest from sponsors and brands that want to be a part of this um, has been really exciting as well. The new Los Angeles NWSL expansion team starts in the spring of 2022. Julie Ehrman, congratulations and thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Julie Ehrman as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. I also want to thank Taylor Rockwell and Daryl Grove of the Total Soccer Show for everything they've done to help get this show off the ground. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.